You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your ESV scripture journal, will you grab that and go with me to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4. And uh, I think we still have a few of these scripture journals left. We gave these out during Advent because we're in a study of the Gospel of Luke that will take us all the way to Easter. There are a few of these left on the tables in the back of the room. So if you have not yet received one, grab one now or on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. And we hope you'll bring that journal and use it each week to follow along, engage with the text we're studying, take notes, sketch, do whatever it is that you do to remain engaged. Our uh, focus this morning is going to be Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? We stand out of reverence and readiness. We truly believe this is God's Word, and we are eager to hear from God this morning. So listen carefully to these words recorded in Luke chapter 4, page 30 of your journal. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil took him to Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So as I said, we've been in this study of the Gospel of Luke since the beginning of Advent, though I realize we've had a few weeks off around the holidays. So let me catch you back up, bring you up to speed on what we've been looking at. And maybe for anyone who's new, who's just now joining us, let me introduce you to Luke and his Gospel. Luke was the first Christian historian. He was an intelligent and diligent man, having been trained as a physician. He had access to the best sources, and he set out to write a reliable account of the ministry of Jesus. And so that's what his gospel is. Now, the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke that we looked at throughout the Advent season focus on the births of John and Jesus. John being the herald, the forerunner, the one who will prepare the way for the king, and Jesus, the one who is king. And we know that Jesus is the king already, even in Luke chapter 2, because you'll remember these words if you were here during Advent. The angel says to the shepherds in Luke 2, 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the deliverer of God's people, the one who rescues us 
from the power and the penalty of sin. He is the one who fulfills all the promises contained in the Old Testament scriptures. He is the one who is the Lord, the sovereign ruler over all of creation because it is, in fact, his creation. Jesus is God in the flesh, God on earth, God with us to redeem us. For the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will show us that he is, in fact, the king, the king of all kings. We know tantalizingly little about Jesus' early years. We see his birth in Luke 2, and then where we pick up the story today in Luke chapter 4, much has happened. In fact, Luke just sort of skips over the large majority of Jesus' childhood years, his adolescent years, even his early adulthood years. In chapter 4, where we pick up the story today, Jesus is in his early 30s now. Chapter 4 to the end of the gospel, this entire part of the scriptures, it's all going to occur within just a handful of years. Jesus in his early 30s. Now, why is that? Because Luke is not interested in providing us with a balanced biography. He wants to zoom in on Jesus' ministry. The time for Jesus' ministry has come. In fact, it's about to begin, but right before it does, he must face the devil. He must face temptation. Now, that's a word we need to think about for just a moment, temptation. The Bible teaches us that temptation is common to humanity, meaning that you and I, whoever we are, we're going to experience it. But what exactly is temptation? If, for example, a married man sees a woman who's not his wife and thinks to himself, she's beautiful, is this temptation? In his classic book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard says, the thought itself is not temptation. Temptation is the thought plus inclination. It's the thought plus lingering. In this case, lusting. Desiring to act. That's the temptation. So here's another example. If I am trying to cut back on my sugar, my sugar intake in the new year, and you say the words, crumble cookies. Is that a temptation? Not not yet. Willard would argue not yet. That's just the thought. That's just the thought. The thought itself is not the temptation. Now, on the other hand, if I'm walking through the city center and I walk past the door of crumble cookies and then I turn back and I give it a little glance and I walk through the door and I linger and I smell the cookies and I begin to make plans to acquire that object of my desire, that's temptation. It's the thought plus inclination, lingering, making plans. Now, the Bible teaches us, like I said, that temptation is common to humanity. You and I, whoever we are, pastors, plumbers, stockbrokers, stay-at-home parents, we will all experience temptation. So the question ought to be, How will we combat the temptation that is sure to come our way? And that's exactly where Luke 4 will help us. We're going to study this morning the face-off, the face-off between Jesus and the devil. And Jesus will show us how to overcome 
our own temptation. He'll show us much more than that. I want us to study this passage. It's very practical. I want us to study this passage carefully, thoughtfully, in three parts. First, the temptations themselves. What are they? If we can understand that, we'll better understand the temptations that will come to us. Second, the tactics. How do these temptations come to Jesus, and how does he overcome them? There, of course, we'll learn how we can overcome our own temptations. And third and finally, the ultimate triumph. We must see that in this story, Jesus is teaching us how to overcome temptation, yes, but furthermore, he's teaching us how one day he will defeat the tempter himself and all evil. So that's where we're going. The temptations, the tactics, and the ultimate triumph. You ready to go with me? Give me a thumbs up if you're ready. It's the start of a new year. I know you're still tired from the holidays. Everybody here? Okay, all right, here we go. First, let's look at the temptations themselves. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And we can't jump straight to the fight scene here. I know that's what my boys always like to do when we're watching a movie. Dad, just get to the fight scene. we got to pay attention to the context first. I want you to see how Jesus arrives at the scene of temptation, or more precisely, who leads him there. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he will be tempted by the devil. It is not always the case that we arrive at temptation only when we have taken a wrong turn. Sometimes it is God's will and God has a good plan in us experiencing temptation. That's certainly true in this story. It's the Holy Spirit himself who leads Jesus to the place where he will be tempted in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he will have a face-off with the devil, a spiritual being, an evil intelligence. Remember that phrase, an evil intelligence. The primeval leader of all rebellion against God, God's people, God's plan. Jesus must look him in the eye. See, in every great story, in every great story, There's that key scene where the hero and the villain, they come eye to eye. For those action flick fans among us, Gladiator, Maximus comes face to face with Commodus in the Colosseum, right? For those Western fans, the good, the bad, and the ugly, think of the end of it. Blondie must face angel eyes there in the cemetery. For the fantasy fans, the Deathly Hallows. At the very end of the story, Harry must face Voldemort there at Hogwarts. Jesus faces the devil. And the devil comes to him with three temptations. The first we could call the temptation of satisfaction. Look at what the devil says. Jesus ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So Jesus has been out in the wilderness for 40 days. The Greek here is a bit cryptic. We're not quite sure if Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and then he was tempted, or if the temptations themselves lasted over a period of 40 days. But either way, the devil now comes to him knowing that Jesus is hungry. And so he tempts him. Jesus, Son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
I know you could do it. Take this natural object and transform it into something that could nourish you. Now, that doesn't really sound like that bad of a temptation, does it? Why would this have been problematic for Jesus to do? It can't be the feeding itself, because later in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to perform a miracle where he feeds 5,000 men. So it can't be the feeding itself. This temptation is subtle. It's not the feeding that's the problem. It's feeding himself. The subtle temptation is this. The devil is trying to entice Jesus to think, to believe that God the Father is not a good provider. The devil is saying, Jesus, God the Father has not cared well for you. He has not provided what you need. Here you are in the desert, in the wilderness. All these days, you've had nothing. You must be hungry. Provide for yourself. Satisfy yourself. The temptation is to doubt the goodness and the provision of God and to seize satisfaction for ourselves. Now, the devil comes at us in similar ways. He will whisper things to you like, you don't need to tithe. God hasn't cared well for you. Why would you give to him? You don't need to pray about that. God hasn't provided well for you. He hasn't met your needs. Just go take care of matters yourself. The devil whispers to us, just like he did to Jesus, the temptation of satisfaction. Care for yourself. Second, the temptation of domination. Verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. Make no mistake, the devil demands nothing less than a change of command. A change of command. You must serve me. You must worship me. And he promises Jesus power and glory. The temptation here is a shortcut. Abandon the path of suffering. Abandon the path of sacrificing yourself. Seize power now. The devil says, seize power now. That's what I did. Follow me. But Jesus knows his mission. He knows that he has come to suffer in our place for our sins. Now the devil will whisper similarly to us. He will whisper to you power and glory. Power and glory. He will whisper to you fame and fortune. Not humility, not gentleness, not sacrifice, not generosity. Power and glory. It's the temptation of domination. Third and finally, the temptation of protection. Look at this one, verse 9. The devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This third temptation involves an element of travel. Somehow, the devil and Jesus now are transported to the temple. 
the place where God's presence is said to dwell. They go to the highest point of the temple, and the devil tempts Jesus to take a leap of faith. Throw yourself off, he says. God will catch you. God will send his angels to protect you. Throw yourself off. The temptation here is to test God's presence and his power by creating a perilous situation. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that God promises to be present with us, his people, during every tribulation, but that does not mean that we should thrust ourselves into trouble in an effort to test him. Jesus knows better. The devil will whisper similarly to us. He will say things like, you don't need to take those pills. I know the doctor prescribed them, but God doesn't need pills to heal you. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? He will say things like, you don't need that accountability group. God will handle your addiction. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? Don't you have faith? Don't fall for it. Listen to me, this is important. Don't let the devil convince you that having great faith means you don't need good sense. The temptation of protection. Now, that's the temptations themselves. We can see them. Now let's look at how these temptations come to Jesus and how he overcomes them. So the tactics, if you will. If we circle back to the very beginning and work through this passage again, remember I said we're going to do this slowly, thoughtfully. If we work through it again, we will see that the devil demonstrates three powers here, one with each temptation. The first, the first tactic or power, is the power of observation. This is simple, but we must see it. It's when Jesus has been in the wilderness. It's after he's been fasting for 40 days. That's when the devil comes to him with this first temptation, which is, eat. Eat, Jesus. Now the question is, how did the devil know he was hungry? And the only answer is, he must have been watching. He must have been observing, studying Jesus, he must have known his hunger. He takes what he sees as Jesus' weakness and he tries to use it against him. The implication for us is that we must know our weaknesses. We must know our weakest moments because the devil will find them. He will find them and he will try to use them against us just like he did with Jesus. He has this power of observation. Now the second is the power of what I'll call amplification. This is sly. Oh man, is it sly. Look at this. Verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And, and there, that's where he tempts him, again with that temptation of domination, remember it? All of this can be yours. Now notice what the text says and think about it for just a moment. The devil took him up. Up to where? Where did they go? 
there's not a mountaintop high enough from which they can see all the kingdoms of the world. What's happening here? One commentator says it like this. He says, this is a diabolical rapture. A diabolical rapture. Somehow, the devil snatches Jesus and they go up into the sky, either in a rapture or in a vision, and from that vantage point, they can see all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, the devil creates the environment where Jesus will see exactly what he wants him to see. The power of amplification. He works the same way today. The devil has this same tactic today. He holds a magnifying glass on sin. He uses the media to do this so that we have this message that everyone in the world believes this. Everyone is living this way. Don't you want to live this way too? You don't want to be left out, do you? You don't want to be thought of as old-fashioned, outdated, do you? He turns up the volume on his own voice by using certain politicians and celebrities as his mouthpiece. This power of amplification he uses so that we will hear and see exactly what he wants us to hear and to see. That's the second tactic. There's one more. The third one, the third power, is argumentation. He knows how to build an argument. He knows exactly how to build an argument. Look at what he does in the third temptation. He took Jesus to Jerusalem. Remember I said there was an element of transportation. They shift scenes. Why? Why go from the wilderness to the temple all of a sudden? Because the temple is a safe space. It's the place where God's presence is said to dwell. Jesus, you can let down your guard here. We're in a safe space now. And then look at what he does. The previous two temptations, Jesus has combated them by quoting Scripture. So what does the devil do now? He quotes Scripture right back at him. Here in this safe space, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Written where? He's quoting from the book of Psalms. He's using the Bible against Jesus. It's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Oh, don't you see? This is what makes the devil so sly, so good at what he does. If this teaches us anything, it teaches us that the devil does not often appear as manifestly evil. He shows up looking beautiful, taking us to a safe space, quoting from a common source. Sometimes the devil uses people in churches. Sometimes he carries a Bible. No one ever said the fallen angels were the ugly ones. These are his tactics. This is how the temptations come to Jesus. Now, how does Jesus overcome them? And I've already hinted at it. Jesus really has one tactic throughout this entire narrative. It's the reflexive application of Scripture. With each temptation... Jesus responds with Scripture. The first one, Jesus answered him, It is written. I know the Scriptures. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 8, the second temptation. Jesus answered him, It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
Verse 12, the third temptation, Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's a reflexive application of Scripture. Now, by reflexive, I mean the Scriptures just come gushing out of Jesus without conscious thought, it seems. That's the way the narrative flows. We don't have this picture that the devil comes with his temptation and Jesus says, you know what, devil, let me think on that for a minute. Maybe I do want to turn that stone into bread. I'm not quite sure. I'll get back to you. The picture is that when the temptation comes, in an instant, Jesus responds with Scripture. It's a reflexive application. Now, there's only one way. There's only one way that that sort of reflexive application of Scripture is possible. A reflective life. A reflective life. A life devoted to the study of Scripture, a reflective life, is the only thing that makes this reflexive application of the Scriptures possible. Let me help you think about it in another way. I remember when I was doing my doctoral studies, hearing this expression over and over by some of my fellow students. Many of my fellow PhD students were working in historical theology, and so what that meant was they picked one figure from church history, and they studied that person's entire corpus, everything he or she had ever written. So someone like Karl Barth or Didymus the Blind. And I remember having conversations with these students working in historical theology, and we would be talking about some contemporary issue, something going on in the world or in the church right now, and they would say something like, Bart would say, or Didymus would say. Now notice, they didn't say, Bart did say, as in, Bart wrote long ago. They said, Bart would say. And that expression always sort of got me thinking, what do they mean by that? Why are they saying that? Bart died in the 60s. He's not here today. What do they mean? What they meant was, they had spent so much time studying the writings of Karl Barth, that they could anticipate his thoughts for the matter at hand. The implications of his teaching were clear for this contemporary issue. Crystal clear. It came right to their minds. So they could hear this contemporary issue and they could say, if Barth were here, he would say this. Here's how he would direct us. And here's what I want you to see. That reflective life when you devote yourself to the study of God's Word in time, it's not automatic, but in time, you will anticipate God's thoughts for the matter at hand. The implications of His Word will be crystal clear to you in that moment when you so desperately need that guidance. The implications will be clear for that temptation that you're facing, and that's how you'll overcome it. The only way to have this reflexive application, to have Scripture just gush right out of you and guide you, is a reflective life. So, here's a practical step for you. If we have your phone number in our church records, you got a text message from me on Friday. And in that text message was a link to a Bible reading plan. It's a new year. Great time to develop some new habits. Make this year a reflective year, the beginning of a reflective life. That Bible reading plan will give you readings for five days of the week. If you're new to reading the Bible daily, it might be too much for you to jump right into, I'm going to read the whole Bible cover to cover this year. 
That sounds great. And then you get through Genesis and you get into Leviticus and you're like, never mind. Next year. I'm going to do it next year. So here's my encouragement to you. Start with the New Testament. If you're new to Bible reading, follow that plan five days a week, one chapter a morning. It'll take you about five minutes. And throughout the year, you will read through the entire New Testament. Make it a reflective year. The beginning of a reflective life. It's the only way you'll have that reflexive application of the scriptures when temptation comes your way, and it will. So, there's the temptations, there's the tactics. One final thing, very quickly. I want you to see that in this story, yes, Jesus teaches us how to overcome temptation, but he does something far greater than that. He shows us, at least hints at the fact, that he is the one who will defeat the tempter himself. He is the one who will triumph. Look at the last verse of this story, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him forever? No. Until an opportune time. It's not over. The devil is not done with Jesus. Or more to the point, Jesus is not done with the devil. He's not done with him yet. This conflict will play out throughout the remainder of the gospel until Jesus goes to the cross. And there at the cross in the empty tomb, he will defeat the devil. There are hints all throughout this story that Jesus is the one who will succeed where all others have failed. There are hints throughout this story that there is no stopping Jesus. Why, for example, is Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? Why not 35 days? Why not 50 Forty is a significant number. In the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, they disobeyed God and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. We read about that wandering in the book of Deuteronomy. That's the same book Jesus quotes when he cites Scripture in response to the temptations. Jesus wants us to make the connection that where Israel failed where Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, where Israel got it wrong, Jesus will get it right. Where they failed, he will remain faithful. But that's not all. There's another connection. It takes us even further back to the very beginning of the Old Testament story. This story is the second time, Luke 4 is the second time in the Bible that there is a face-off with the devil. The first one is in the Garden of Eden. It's Adam. And that face-off did not go well. Adam in the garden had an abundance of food. He could eat of every tree of the garden except one. And of that one tree he ate, he followed the devil. He gave in to the temptation. But here in this face-off, Jesus... Jesus, who's been in the wilderness with nothing to eat, much worse off than Adam was, nothing to eat. He resists the temptation to eat. He does not follow the devil. He does not satisfy himself and seize power for himself. He serves. He sacrifices. Yes, this passage teaches us how we can overcome temptation. But the most important thing this passage teaches us is that when we succumb to temptation, 
when we fail, Jesus remains faithful. Brothers and sisters, our foundation with God, it's it's not our own obedience. No. It's the obedience of Jesus, the faithful one. Obedience to the point of death, death on the cross, where he defeats all evil. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, for his faithfulness in our place, for his sacrifice in our place for our sins. We ask you this morning to give us the strength we need to face those temptations that surely will come our way in this new year. Help us to develop holy habits to begin that reflective life, studying your word so that we will be ready for those temptations. But above all, comfort our hearts with this glorious truth of the gospel that when we fail, when we succumb to the temptation, we can always look to Jesus, the one who was faithful, the one who forgives us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.